From New York, welcome to Mark to Markets. I'm your host, Mark Penziner. Thank you for taking the time to spend with me. On Mark to Markets, we discuss topics both near and far from finance and the capital markets. Today, the topic is Amazon, everything related to its business, how we shop, the entire retail business, and the stock itself. Later on, I'll talk with Dana Herman. She's a managing director on Bernstein's trading desk, and she covers Amazon. But first, I'll bring in a longtime friend of mine, Stephen Ross. Stephen has spent a lifetime in the retail business and will bring an interesting perspective on Amazon and the disruption in the retail space. Just to give you some background, Stephen currently sits on the advisory board of Accenture South Africa, and he's the former CEO of one of Africa's largest retailers, Edgar Stores. Today, they have over 1,000 stores across Africa. Prior to working for Edgar's, he's worked at Macy's, Sears, and Phillips Van Neusen. Steve, thanks for joining me. My pleasure, Mark. Steve, so I've got to start with a really broad question. In just the last week or two, Macy's announces really good news. At the same time, JCPenney's and Nordstrom stocks get punished on bad news. So what's Mm -hmm. the issue in the retail space? Well, for the most part, I think we're looking at quarterly earnings, yes? Yeah. Yeah, so there's it's not uh i just don't think it's reflective of the full condition of the market i think that uh some of this is a bounce against soft numbers a year ago and some of it is uh ongoing challenges that retailers face so uh you'll see some people relying on the standard uh excuse which is that the weather wasn't in favor but i actually think in parts of the united states the northeast uh, in particular the weather was particularly difficult for january february and march um, I, I think that, uh, and, then, and then some retailers, of course, have a calendar which starts February 1st, and it's February, March, April, and April started to give them a little bit of benefit. So I, I think you got to compare apples to apples, but I, I wouldn't take too much comfort if I was a Macy's investor out of, um, out of the, the results, and I wouldn't take too much uh, uh, fear out of the, the results uh, at Nordstrom. You know, I think that they're... <laughs> both institutions that have legs. You mentioned the notion, the bigger issue on retail. What is the big issue for retail? I think the big issue for retail is managing the disruption in the marketplace and how they manage the disruption in the marketplace. And I think, uh, you know, there, there's uh, a lot of different ways to talk about this, but, but essentially the, the healthiest retailers have the best chance of surviving the onslaught. And the marginal retailers are going to have to either leapfrog uh, where they currently are or they're going to have to figure out ways to slowly marginalize themselves at the, and maximize profit at the same time. I'm not so sure that that's easy to do. I, I look at, uh, you know, there there is a huge... There's a huge disruption from the Amazon side. I think we're going to hear that this year Amazon has actually replaced Walmart as the largest apparel retailer in the country. Uh, that's quite phenomenal considering that, you know, the amount of time that they've been in the business and particularly the amount of the time that they've been in the fashion business, which is really relatively recent. It's simply a, f- a function of scale. It's simply a function of reach and it is also, in their case, a function of being highly competitive on pricing. So the, 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 the trauma for brick-and-mortar retailing, what people that pay rent for lots of stores and have to capitalize those stores every five to seven years to keep them looking current, 
is that they, they're paying rent. They don't have the um, cloud service revenue that Amazon has to offset their deep discounting. And, and so the, in order to match price, a lot of people are taking more pain than they can actually sustain based on their overheads. So the solution for that for some in the short term is to reduce their overheads. And unfortunately, that affects payroll first more than anything else. The problem with that is it, it affects payroll on the ground for staff so that the customer experience deteriorates. Customer comes into a store, they want to buy something, they want to ask a question, and if 10 years ago there were, you know, it was hard to find somebody, it's now impossible. And the problem with that is, is that at the same time, the experience on online retailers has improved tremendously. Some of it because of artificial intelligence, some of it because uh, they are consistently better managed inventory-wise so that they are in stock. So you see something you like, you say, okay, I'd like to buy that, and of course they have it. And not only do they have it, but then you have it a day later, two days later, whatever you, whatever you want, basically. Um, there, is a, there is a disconnect that's happening in, in brick-and-mortar stores, and you see it throughout the specialty and the department store retailers, which is that they are not properly in stock for the season that they're in. They're trying to manage their inventories on a tighter and tighter basis, which is, is, is something they need to do to improve their gross margin return on investment. But if you're not putting your investment into the styles that are selling and into the sizes and colors that are selling, then you're really working off a shrinking pool of, of um, saleable assets. And that's, that's what is a dilemma right now for a lot of the brick and mortar retailers. It's the basic housekeeping and blocking and tackling is, is, uh, is struggling. And it is because they've cut down their organization sizes. They may not be uh, as up to date as some of the competitors, certainly not as the online competitors in terms of their merchandise information systems. They, they don't have artificial intelligence for the most part to help them. So they're not able to look at reams and reams of data and process it and make the right sort of decisions on an at-once, just-in-time basis. And that's the other part of it. A lot of these guys are locked into paradigms of how to source product, and it takes a long time, and it comes from overseas, and it comes uh, on the heels of investment decisions that are made before the selling reality in the current season would indicate that it's a good decision or a bad decision. So it's a lot of um, a lot of gambling, and that gambling doesn't pay off that well, or at least not as at least not with as much um, uh, of a conversion to, to sales that uh, that happens in the online sales. In the online business, if you're not looking at thousands of racks of stuff and picking one thing. You dial into the page you want, you pick the thing you want, you buy it, and and that's it. And you're done. So I think you've hit three interesting notions there. One is pricing as related to Amazon. The second is, mm -hmm. is infrastructure, right? Brick and mortar. And then third is experience. So let me try and deconstruct them. Um, this may sound like a really easy question, but a lot of people who listen to this aren't in your business. So how is it that Amazon is so much cheaper than everybody? Well, for, for one thing, you know, <laughs> Jeff has been rewarded from the beginning of time for having a highly cash generated business. And it's only recently that he started to turn a profit. And yet he had uh, stock trading at, uh, at enormous uh, multiples to, uh, to initially to no earnings and now to, uh, uh, to, to good earnings. But most of those earnings are coming out, as I understand it, out of his cloud-based business. 
So he has, uh, like the like the old department stores did 20 years ago, 25 years ago, relied on their credit income to subsidize their operation to a certain extent. He's relying on those uh, that the profit out of his uh, out of his his uh, cloud business to, to to allow him the the um, the latitude to price goods nearly at cost. I mean, if you go online and you see what he's selling certain products for, it's it's going to be difficult for even Walmart to, to match those prices. The other thing is is that a lot of people learned 25 years ago that brand differentiation by tier of store, which means department stores always got the better brands, and the national department stores got a version of the, the national brands, but they didn't get designers, and then of course the the discounters virtually got nothing. And but it was Walmart's increasing growth over time and persistence at trying to squeeze out opportunity for brands that got them at least a level of brand distribution. That that lesson was a hard lesson for a lot of wholesalers, and they've now understood that you, it, there's no escaping Amazon. And, and in fact, you'd be a fool to not want to um, uh, to work with them, e e whether directly or indirectly, because that's the other part. You know, there's a, a whole host of uh, participating merchants that work with uh, with Amazon that you know they had prior arrangements with the wholesalers and they bought goods from those wholesalers, and now it comes online. And and then on top of that, um, Amazon is committed to to making themselves a fashion um, savvy retailer, and they've hired people, and they're doing a pretty good job of coming up with some good private level programs. And with their purchasing power and their and their overhead structure, they can price them in ways that nobody else can. So, but then there's the the shopping experience, right? You talked about a lot of the benefits of. The I'll call it the efficiency of the online shopping experience. There, there is an experience when right. you walk into a, a store, and, right. and I know you you you've been involved in or or um, had access to a, a lot of information about what a shopper cares about when they walk into a store, which Amazon doesn't offer. So, what did you learn from from some of that knowledge? Well, you know, I I can I can take you back to 1996 to a Women's Wear Daily survey that was done with 10,000 uh, respondents, which was at that point in time statistically significant in the United States. And the question was essentially, what what motivates you to select the mall that you go to, uh, and and what's the most important thing for you there? And you, you would expect a, a litany of responses that range from, the, well, the mall experience, the restaurants, the store, the mix of stores, the pricing. But actually, the number one motivator for women to uh, choose one mall over another was clean restrooms. <laughs> and, and that's a wake-up call for all retailers because it makes them realize that the, what the customer sees is going to generally form an opinion about where she shops and 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 you think it's just about your product you think it's just about being in stock of the right items and having the right brands but it's all of it it's everything including the restrooms it's the it's the experience itself that has to be perfect from beginning to end or else you have a, a customer who's disappointed if she finds what she likes and she's got all the stuff that she really needs and she puts it in her arms and she brings it to the to the checkout and she has to wait for 15 minutes to get to the register and she's going to make a sizable purchase where you have just destroyed whatever goodwill you created by having the right product in the first place. 
And, and you know, as an interesting footnote to that, it, they repeated that same survey in 2006. And when they repeated that survey in 2006, clean restrooms moved to second place. This is America now. Clean restrooms moved to second place because first place was mall security. <laughs> so, so two things which I think most people would not jump to uh, the conclusion that these are the most important things in their world are actually very important to them. So does that mean, you used mall security and you talked about malls, does this mean if you've got to provide a great experience to a, a customer or a shopper, that brick and mortar with that kind of hurdle rate is essentially dead or, or, or on its way out? Because I think that's the thing that people wrestle with, right, with Amazon, is then brick and mortar is just dead. Yeah, I think, I, I don't think, I think that's, a, that, that's probably going to be true over time, but for a variety of other reasons. I think as you, you consider the shoppers that are 35 and under who've grown up, uh, you know, much more comfortable with the idea of not having to go places to buy stuff. And they, 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 yeah, they're much more satisfied to spend their time in, in, in different pursuits than driving to the mall, sitting in traffic, and you know, uh, running the risk of uh, you know any number of things, and including paying for parking, which happens more and more now. Um, they they're comfortable with the idea of shopping differently, and that's uh, the maturing generation of spenders that will change the the brick and mortar concept for good. I think. I, I think, however, this is a, a, another sort of 15 to 20 year horizon, which gives the better retailers, and I don't mean better in terms of higher price retailers, but the ones that actually are running their businesses with a very uh, keen eye to who their customer is, what their customer is looking for for customer experience, what the niche of product is that their customers really demand that they have in stock at all times and, and, and shows appropriate levels of newness and appropriate levels of understanding of who that customer is and who personalize the service, who can look a customer in the eye and, you know, take them to a fixture, say hello, remember their name. Um, you know, it's an interesting sidebar, but there's, an, an, you know, some of the hotels have gotten very good at this and they, they make a point. Uh, you, you start, people start calling you by your name almost instantly. And it's all because, you know, the guy at the front door has looked at your luggage tag, you know, and it, and it, but, but they're smart enough to pick up on it. And you think, oh, my God, they remember me. How could they possibly remember me? I haven't been here for three years. They, what a memory. These guys are great. You know, that, that, that you don't get from, um, you won't get that online, but you can get it in stores. And, and I, I suspect that this will be a, a conversation about last man standing and the guys that, have carved out their best position and can hold off while this disruption shakes out and the landlords start to reconsider what appropriate rents are and while they start to consider and reconsider what the appropriate configuration of them all are and, and maybe what the balance of entertainment and restaurants are to the total and you know how to make the experience uh, serve the, the alternate purpose that it serves in so many places in America, which is it is a social, it is a social destination. And, and if you can optimize what your drawing power is on restaurants and you can optimize what your drawing power is on, on movies, uh, hopefully there'll still be a movie business in 20 years, you, you, you will have a handful of retailers that can, can work their way through this 
and hopefully recognize the the excess of their expansion in the early 2000s and dial back to what's a reasonable number and at the same time reinvest uh, sort of dormant cash into making sure that they also have an online experience that is um, uh, it enables them to compete. You, you think the brick so and mortar will end up with some mix of brick and mortar and, and online so that they're surviving? I think that's what they'll have to do. And and then, you know, the guys that are really long-sighted enough, and depending on how the trend plays out, may decide to ultimately migrate their brand out of brick and mortar and into online exclusively. It may just be the way of the future. But there's huge equity in names like Macy's and Nordstrom's and Dillard's and people like that. And, and uh, that that equity shouldn't be just thrown away. People shouldn't throw up their hands and say, oh, well, I guess this is over. I guess we should just, you know, throw in the towel. We're going to lose to Amazon. And if you think about it, even if, if Amazon becomes number one, and I think I heard this number a week ago, I think they will still have uh, less than a 10% share, for instance, in apparel. Now, that means there's another 90% that's being spread around elsewhere. Right. I, I'll raise my hand and take 5% of that. You know, that would make me uh, a mighty big company. Right. Let me ask a, a maybe last question. Anyway. Uh, maybe mm-hmm. a, a last question as hindsight. Could could the retailers yeah. have done anything differently? I don't know. Ten years ago, to have prevented Amazon yeah, they, they, they could have tried to put Amazon out of business, or they could have paid a lot more attention and ramped up a lot sooner to have made um, this not such a uh, easy pickings. I. I, I, there is an interesting parallel, I think, between what Amazon's done and what uh, Walmart did. You know, people forget, but when Walmart started, they they basically started in very remote locations, and that was not uh, just because of where Bentonville was, but because, uh, as I understand it, Sam Walton's plan was let's open the first 500 stores in places where nobody is, and except mom and pop people that are vulnerable to being competed with. And they did that, and 500 stores generates a hell of a lot of cash, especially the way he was running it. And he was smart enough also to realize that what was wrong with the some of his competitors, they were inefficient in logistics management. So he built his, his rollout of stores around a logistics plan, which was the right way to do it. Then he opened the next 500 stores, and he says, geez, I'm going to open up where where uh, Kmart is vulnerable, where Kmart is the weakest, where some of these other local regional discounters are the weakest, and I'm going to open up there. And and he did. And, you know, I worked at Sears in, in 1989. I joined Sears, and they were the number one retailer in America still. And they didn't talk about Walmart nearly as much as they talked about Kmart because Kmart was number two. Well, by 1990 and a half, Walmart was, had blown past both of them, Kmart and Sears. <laughs> and and the, the, the parallel is is that Jeff refined his business strategy off of, uh, you know, books and CDs, and nobody really noticed. And then he started to add more and more stuff over time, and nobody really paid that much attention. But, uh, you know, the, the growth curve is exponential, and I think people were reluctant to see this as something that would disrupt their mode of retail. You know, they, they looked at it and said, well, our market's very big, and there's, you know, there's malls all over the place. That's not going away. How could it? You know, but in the end, it it, it can. I, I think the lesson from that, Steve, is to see who the disruptors are, and then also right. importantly, know who the the real competition is—not today, but five or ten years from now. 
And in all fairness to the retailers, you know, they sat and watched, well, well, Amazon's market cap just climbed and climbed and climbed, and, and they were struggling. If they didn't have, you know, good high single-digit comps each and every quarter, they were getting hammered, you know, they, and they're not, uh, in many instances, trading up to their full value. So they've, they've had a harder slog, and they, that's the thing that they should have taken note of. Why is the market giving these guys such a better deal than they're giving us? And part of the answer is because they didn't have an articulated plan for what they were going to do to fill that space. Steve, this was incredibly insightful. I thank you for your time today. My pleasure, Mark. I turn the discussion now to Dana Herman. Dana is a senior managing director on Bernstein's trading desk. She trades media and telecom, which includes Amazon. Dana has been at Bernstein 10 years and has 27 years experience on various trading desks across the street. Dana, thanks for joining me. Thanks, Mark. Dana, I'm going to start with a really general question. Many of my listeners don't work on Wall Street, so I think it's worth taking a minute to just give them some insight into the industry. Explain to us exactly what a trader does. Well, we um, at Bernstein, it's a little confusing because we have the private wealth side, and then we also have a separate side that's complete uh, that sells research. We have a premium research product, and institutional customers, meaning the Fidelities, the Wellingtons, uh, hedge funds, they read our research and then they pay us for that research in terms of trades. So on any given day, a money manager can decide to buy or sell Microsoft, and they will come give us the order, buy you know, 250,000 Microsoft, and pay us a commission. And that commission is pay payment for uh, the research that we provide them. Is, is there an art to it, or are you just, obviously it's gotta be more simple than just hitting a button and putting in a uh, trade for 250,000 shares. So what's the, the the uh, nuance to it so a lot of from when I started in the business 27 years ago it, everything was done manually you'd pick up the phone call other broker dealers you would be bidding Morgan Stanley for a stock you'd have to manually input the ticket now everything is pretty much technology based we do have a uh, premium technology product where we have a lot of different algorithms um, for our use but ultimately where we pride ourselves um, is on the cross ratio, meaning someone gives us a, bu a buy order and we know where the liquidity is and we find a seller. So that's, that, that's what we call a cross. Uh, that is what institutional customers want. They are looking for the block trade, a block being you know, anywhere from 10,000 shares up to 2 million shares would really constitute a block. So, so let me ask a question before I turn to Amazon, right? So that, that's, I think complicated for a lot of our listeners, which is fine, but, but it brings up the question because I, I hear this from clients a lot. Wall Street seems to be like lots of electronic trading, big algorithms, lots of this fast money, high frequency trading. So if you're a private wealth client and you're thinking of owning whatever, Amazon, Microsoft, Apple for the next three to five years, do they need to be worried or concerned about the stuff you just talked about that's going on in the markets minute to minute? No. No, everything. I mean, ultimately, markets are efficient. Um, with the electronic trading, your app, you're allowed. It enables you to process a lot more volume. Um, algorithms. There are some that are quote dirty, where they have, you know, people basically just key off them and try and trade these micro spreads um, with sizable, sizable blocks. That's all confusing. When you weed that out, at the end of the day. Markets settle in where they should be. The retail investor, they definitely can move a stock like an Amazon because with 
price tag that it's at is $1,600 stock, people are not really buying these blocks. So every little hundred shares can move it. But at the end of the day, the stock trades where it should trade based on news or whatever. There may be dislocations, but it is efficient. So, so you you brought up Amazon. So you sit there in real time when the market's open from 9.30 to 4 and, and see the stock move. Um, give us just a general feel for, for how you think about Amazon today and what's going on with the stock. You know, not, not a buy or sell recommendation, but just generally from your seat, what you think about it. I mean, Amazon has definitely been a winning stock for uh, most TMT uh, uh mutual funds and hedge funds. It's one of those stocks, if the stock is have, has an outside move downward, uh, we get a lot of questions. Everyone just assumes it's going to go up forever. So it's always interesting if the stock's down 2% and no one really sees if the rest of the market's not down 2% and you don't see a headline that should technically impact Amazon, there's always a lot of concerns. Um, and sometimes it's just, you know, there's a big seller in the market and the stock dislocates because it's hard to move to move size in an, a stock like Amazon. Um, but it is definitely, what's interesting about Amazon is everyone cares about it. The general public, yeah. everyone uses it there. And then on the investment side, you have technology companies that use it because it's all driven by technology. You have the retail um, complex that has to look at uh, Amazon. You have the, the technology away from how Amazon powers its website, but the cloud service business is a huge part of Amazon. You have the transportation analysts looking at Amazon because they move so many packages. So there's really, everyone has their eyes on Amazon. So it's interesting, right? So if, if you were sitting with my phone for a day or two and questions came up about Amazon, it feels like everybody loves the stock. But for every time someone wants to buy the stock, somebody's got to be a seller, right? It's just the math. you got to have someone to buy it from. So I, I'm not asking specifically who, but is there always a market? There, are there always people looking to get out of Amazon or, or stocks in general that you can always match a buyer with seller? You know, that's such a great question because when someone says a stock is crowded, what does that mean? Because there's only X number of shares outstanding. So I've always pondered the same question. I guess the real difference, you can, See, there is always a seller. I mean, sometimes that could be a trading desk that's filling you in, but more times than not, it is usually a customer that's on the other side of the trade. But sometimes in order to buy that stock, you may have to take it up a dollar to buy 10,000 shares. Whereas if you were going to sell it, you, it may just take you, you could sell it right in line. You'd have no impact to the stock. So that's interesting, right? So from your seat as a trader, you're talking about some of the, I'll call it liquidity moves in the market, right? Match and buy and sellers. So if you think about Amazon or any stock day to day, how much of it is fundamentals that my clients could see in the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, on CNBC, and then how much of it is, I guess I'd call it um, technicals or trader movement that's not really related to a big headline on the stock? I think a third is probably about the stock. A third is the sector being, it usually gets lumped in with the FANG, the Facebook, Apple, Netflix, Google, FANG sector. Uh, and then a third is really macro. So whatever, any big uh, macro headlines that are driving the market that day, that will usually be the leader. Um, it's a lot of beta. It's in every indice. Uh, but it is some. it is very resilient because there are so many, it has so many subsectors to it that if you know if Trump, 
if something's going on in retail and someone actually put, posts a good number and maybe they're actually uh, Amazon's not impacting them, it doesn't usually affect Amazon. The only headline that really affected Amazon was when the when Trump went after the Postal Service. That had a minor impact for a day or so, and then people realized that this really isn't going to amount to anything. Um, so it seems mostly it's mostly macro. Uh, it's just it's really resilient or earnings. There's always a big move on earnings, and there are always expectations. So you may look read the press release and say, "Wow, that looks like a phenomenal quarter. Earnings were up X." You look at their revenue number; it's huge. Um, but that may not be where the street, meaning the sell side, was expecting them to be. That being said, the past three quarters, it was up 3.6%, 3%, and 13% the <laughs> quarters. So it does get a big move on earnings. That's the only guarantee you have. So, so you talked about how Amazon is, I don't know, you could call it five or ten different sectors, right? It's transportation, it's a retailer, it's a media company. Um, how did it wind up on your desk and not on the desk of, let's say, Walmart and Target? Yeah, there's there's a battle to be had there. Um, <laughs> originally, it actually, you know what it goes back to? It goes back to when Amazon went public and there was an internet vertical. And most of the internet stocks derived their income from uh, advertising. So this got lumped in, you know, it's still, institutional investor does rankings, which are very important to sell-side research analysts. And there is still this internet vertical that includes Amazon, Facebook, uh, Priceline, the fact that they're all lumped together, even though they have very different business models, seems archaic. Uh, but that's where you know Wall Street sometimes is slow to change. And then when Amazon has good or bad numbers, just because of how large it is, does it impact how your whole sector trades? Yes, yes, it is definitely the leader. Um, unless it's a one-off, I would say you know when Facebook had their uh, had the meddling with the elections. Um, and Cambridge Associates show that was a one-off with Facebook. It took Amazon down a little and the other fang names, but in general, that seemed very stock-specific. But if Amazon, during an earnings period, Amazon, say, puts up a good number, and everyone looks to see the reaction of Amazon. If it's a good number and it trades up, the other comps will trade up. If it's a good number, but it's used as a, quote, sell the news, okay, you know what, I've made so much money in this. How much more upside is there? Regardless of the number, I'm going to sell it. Um, then you would expect everyone to be down. But it is definitely the leader. So this is a, a really good example of what we talk about in the private wealth side, active management. And there's this conversation between active stock picking, which gets into trading, and then passive management. I've got to guess Amazon, as such a big company with an enormous market cap, is in tons of different indices, let alone the S&P 500 and a bunch of different ETFs. Is there any way from a trader's perspective to get a feel for how much of the price movement of Amazon or just generally what the impact of passive ETFs indexing is on the trading desks or on stocks? On every specific order, our algorithms are so sophisticated that they will tell me what's inaccessible, um, inaccessible order flow. So with that, it's, okay, the retail, the retail investor, so the guy who's trading on his own behalf at Schwab or E-Trade, that I don't have access to that liquidity, uh, that's inaccessible. Um, some of the ETF volume, that's inaccessible. It will tell me, like I can, on any given order, there could be up to, you know, 30% of the volume is inaccessible. 
wow. But then on a day when, you know, we've had days which seem unusual to, to me and my clients where the market's down five, six, 700 points and it feels like in an hour. Um, do you get a feel for what that's coming from? Is that, you know, ETFs just dumping and everything selling off or is it specific to certain things? I, I would think that the, the amount of money in passive impacts the market as a whole. A hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, Amazon, Amazon's actually the third highest weighting in the S&P, but that's still under 3%. It's a 2.7% weighting. Um, but it tends to, if you look at a chart of Amazon um, overlaid with a chart of the S&P, they tend to trade together, barring any, you know, an acceptable <laughs> news day. Uh, so it is definitely, you can see it. You know, you look at all the S&P stocks, they're all going to trade together. Those baskets come out. You can definitely feel it in the market. So one last general question, Dana. Um, for you, what's the most interesting part of trading day-to-day? It could be about Amazon or just broadly about working on the desk. The most interesting part, I would say it's really it's disseminating the news quickly. Um, you know, as I speaking to you right now, you know, Comcast considering an all-cash offer to buy all of Fox. Well, we knew this was going, this was definitely a possibility. Okay, now it's calling around to the streets saying, you know, what do you think that number is? How high, much higher does Fox go? Where do you look to sell Fox? And kind of lining up where the bodies are. Okay, I know I have buyers <laughs> at 37. I have sellers at 40 if it happens to get there. I mean, these are very sophisticated people that we talk to, portfolio managers, that have targets and they stick to them. They have to be disciplined. And it, even though it's very technologically driven, there's still a human element to the market. And knowing, having the contacts after 27 years that I have, it's fun to know everyone's opinion and everyone has an opinion and everyone has a price where they're going to buy stock and sell stock. So just aggregating those thoughts is really what gives you a rush every day. Dana, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks, Mark. Take care. I'll end our podcast with a final thought, but before that, a quick disclaimer. References to specific securities are presented to illustrate the application of our investment philosophy only and are not considered to be recommendations by Alliance Bernstein. Please note U.S. government obligations like Treasury notes are not FDIC insured. They may lose value and are not bank guaranteed. With that, now on to the topic of interest and yield. It shocks me that many banks are paying virtually nothing on many checking, savings, and money market accounts. Heck, I've seen this with my own banking, and I've heard about it twice on Bloomberg Radio in the last week. Banks are frankly awash in deposits, and I assume they see no need to pay a higher rate of interest to their depositors. That's us. Keep in mind the Fed has raised rates this year, and the 10-year Treasury is now floating around 3%. Simple 90 to 180-day Treasuries, which you can buy from us, pay roughly 1.5%. That's significantly more than nothing at the bank. At some point, bank depositors will insist that banks pay more. But until that point, leaving money in a bank account earning next to nothing when you can earn 1% to 2% more seems like a fairly obvious trade to me. For more information, you can reach me at mark.penziner at bernstein.com or in the office at 212-969-6655. That's it for Mark for Markets. Until next time, so long.
Mm-hmm.